This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. This is a special episode brought to you by a collaboration between O'Reilly and our partner Thingworks, a PTC company. We're recording at Liveworks, that's PTC's big user conference in Boston. It focuses on every aspect of the connected world, from hardware and the IoT at one end to augmented reality on the other. At Liveworks, O'Reilly presented a series of hands-on workshops called the O'Reilly IoT Learning Lab. We walked attendees through the process of hooking up sensors to a Raspberry Pi and streaming data to the cloud. The whole process takes as little as 30 minutes if you're comfortable with a command line, and anyone can do it within an hour or two. If you're interested in trying out the Learning Lab yourself, you can join us for a modified version of it on a webcast that we're leading on Tuesday, June 21 at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Check the show notes for this episode for a link. You'll find them at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. Or, if you're listening to this after June 21, you can find an archived version of the webcast at O'Reilly.com slash hardware as well, or by checking the show notes. I'm here with two of the minds behind the IoT Learning Lab. First, we've got my colleague Brian Jepson, who's in charge of acquiring our books and videos on all the most fun topics. Electronics, prototyping, embedded systems, 3D printing, CNC machining. And he's really an authority on all of those things. Thanks, John. Really glad to be here. And also here is Chris Marangolo. He's a partner support specialist at PTC, so he takes people's ideas for what they'd like to build with the IoT, and he figures out how to turn them into reality. Glad to be here. So let's go ahead and take the listener through the process, through you know roughly what they'll hear about in our June 21 webcast. So I would assume that any listener who's running to their computer to do all this stuff, they're going to already have that Raspberry Pi you know, ripped out of the box, the packaging all thrown all over the place. And uh, after that, they're going to hook it all up they're going to start running the agent software. So we, we have all this software uh, up in GitHub so that people can download it and we can keep making updates and fixing things and, and just making it better as we go along. They can pull down the software, they can start it running, they can send the data stream up to their ThingWorks uh, trial edition, and then they can start visualizing the data. And I mean, it's really that simple. It's just five steps and they go right through it. The remarkable thing about this demo to me is that a single person can sit there and in two hours get from, you know, some pieces of electronics scattered on a table up to uh, a working real-time display. Yeah, you're basically looking at a full-stack hardware developer here. They're starting at the lowest possible level. In, in this case, we are using the, the lowest possible level of programming language that you could get to without it becoming really difficult. We were, we were working with C, so we're starting out with the C language, and we're ending up with incredibly rich graphical experiences on the web, visualizations. This would, it's, it's amazing that we could have done this in a couple of hours. What's even more amazing is that there were people, a few people in each class who I, I swear got it done in half an hour. And a few people in each class who also weren't software or electrical Absolutely. engineers at all. Absolutely. We had variety of backgrounds, plenty of designers, mechanical engineers, folks who are coming from a CAD background, plenty of, some people with electronics, some software people, but some people who are not in technical positions and have no technical background at all. Yeah. We've reached a point where anyone with, you know, some problem that can be solved by gathering a little data from something and sending it up to the internet can implement uh, you know a really basic solution I, I i've been speaking with a lot of like mechanical engineers in particular as you say who are like yeah i have some sort of test rig i want to compare the performance of a couple of different designs 
Um, so I'm going to hook some, some, uh, you know, sensors up to a raspberry Pi and embed them and, uh, and, and see what happens in real time. So these are people who don't have to go to their IT department and write a spec anymore. They can start to implement these things themselves. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's really come about in the last, I don't know, uh, pretty much since I started with, with this company, it was about seven years ago. And, uh, I remember back then trying to even think about an IoT project on some hardware. I mean, you're looking at all kinds of really embedded systems and there's nothing that was super easy to access. And within the last couple of years, there's just been board after board after board that in, that's very easy to access, that's very easy to work with. That's, you know, now we don't have to worry about having breadboards for people to wire up and, and, you know, maybe wiring it backwards and burning themselves just a little bit. You know, we, we have these nice little one package boards that we can just put together and now, bam, you've got an IoT device and you're ready to rock and roll. Now, as I've said, the Learning Lab isn't just a workshop that we did at LiveWorks. It's a tutorial that anyone can try out at home. So in the workshop, we used a sensor board that's not on the market yet, but it is reasonably easy to adapt the example to any sensor that works with the Raspberry Pi. So we'll have more details on this in the June 21 webcast, um, but you can also read the PDF booklet that we use during the workshop. It does talk about the sensor that's not on the market yet, but it, it's still very informative. All of the sensors, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, all of the sensors that are on the board we used are available separately. Uh, as far as I know, they are, yeah. So, and even if they're not, at least 80% of them are. So they're all pretty standard, easy to get. I picked up a couple of them. I plan to explore some more of them. So what you do, if you download the PDF and you have a Raspberry Pi, preferably a three, and at least one of the sensors, you would go through a few steps that we outline in the book. And some of these steps are enabled by, by the things that were announced here at LiveWorks. Um, for example, you'll be able to access a developer trial edition of ThingWorks, and that'll run for 120 days, which is more than enough time to do what you have to do. That can run on your own machine. You just deploy it into Tomcat, and it'll run. And then on the Raspberry Pi, you're going to get our C code, and you're going to compile what's called an agent. Now, Chris, I've been kind of badly explaining what an agent is. And I bet, I bet, I bet you can explain it a, a little better. To me, it's a piece of software that runs on the Raspberry Pi that reads sensors and talks to the ThingWorks instance, but I've just described procedurally what it does. The agent, as I understand it, produces some spectacular uh, spews of data that just uh, echo oh, yeah. right out into your shell. Yep, yep. We scroll a lot of text by the by the eyes of our participants, and then we ask them to no check whether they can see a specific error message inside of that. <laughs> and it has worked a lot better than you would think. And that that's been a little interesting because even though we mention it in the guide and I've sometimes called it out. It still is counterintuitive to somebody in a workshop that an error message is a good thing, mm -hmm. but we try to teach them that, that they're seeing the right error message and that error message tells us that they're ready for the next step. So Chris, let's talk, tell me, educate me on agents well, a bit. <laughs> so procedurally, you're exactly right. That's exactly what it does. 
Uh, it's also really good if you're ever at work and you're trying to sleep and you just need some data flying by your screen to make it look like you're working. That's great for it. <laughs> that's that's they used to have these things called boss keys. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would do something like that. They would like cause an Excel spreadsheet to pop up in the middle of Tetris. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. now now you can uh, now you can just have data flying up to the cloud while you're while you're slacking off. All right. Um, Contemporary IoT boss key. Excellent. Absolutely. So. Really, that's the uh, the concept of an agent is all about that brokerage between the physical world and the digital world, as we were talking about. So it really it's exactly that. It does what you said um, in that way, but it, it runs in a loop, and that's really its only job. That's all it's ever going to do is just pull data in, push data up. Right. Every once in a while, maybe there'll be a request to send something down to the agent, but that we call it an agent really because it's think of it like an agent, like there's another person here and I need to tell them to do something or they need to tell me something. So that, you know, is, you know, modeling that relationship with the physical world. So the agent for people who, um, who are familiar with, uh, like Arduino, there's a loop in all of your Arduino code that runs at 400 cycles a second and, and can do whatever you want the microcontroller to do. Same here. It's, it's, um, it's looping and running over and over again and executing some code, pushing stuff up, pulling stuff down. Now would be a good time to start talking about the difference between what we've done here um, with, uh, you know, some heavy duty C code and uh, an IoT platform in the cloud versus uh, what you're likely to do if you kind of just start tinkering with an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi at home. Uh, actually, there's not a whole lot of difference. The, the agent paradigm is, is very re repeatable for any IoT project. I mean, really... Like we said, it's all about establishing that data stream and getting that data up into the cloud so that, you know, running in a loop over and over and over again and doing the same thing over and over and over again is is really at the heart of what we're doing. So there's a little bit of a difference, I, I think, between between the two cases. If you, if you take a look at where the PDF book you download it, where it's going to lead you, sort of one of the first things you do out of the box with an Arduino is to write some code that makes an LED blink. The Arduino is still generally tethered between a computer and can send messages back to the computer, and so it's not a completely closed system. But we go very quickly from writing this agent that reads sensors to pushing that sensor data right up into, into the cloud. And while you're, you're right, Chris, this is a paradigm that's very repeatable. I, John, you were, I think, asking about the typical experience that somebody has when they fire up an Arduino or, to be fair, Raspberry Pi. This isn't about yeah. limitations of one or the other. In fact, a lot of people, their first physical computing project, whether it's Raspberry Pi or Arduino, is going to be blinking an LED. Whereas we went, we took people right to right to the cloud. And I think, I think that, that was what you were asking. The other thing I'm asking is uh, whether there's something more heavy duty, so to speak, in the way that, that you've written the agent, written the routine that runs, than uh, someone, a hobbyist, who takes an Arduino out of a box and starts playing with it. I think there's a little bit of a difference. I'm thinking back to when I'm learning something new in Arduino, I tend to go... I usually, if I'm working with a new device in Arduino, I'll typically download a library, install that library, and 
copy and paste a couple lines of code. In, in this case, we, we were, were certainly using libraries, certainly compiling against libraries, but the, the code is, is a little bit more complex in some ways in that it's doing more, but at the same time, like on the Arduino where you have the loop that runs continuously, it is, it is easy for people to understand, but I think some of that is, is the difference in how you approach it. I'm mm-hmm. reminded when I start programming something with Arduino or even Raspberry Pi versus when I start building out, when I, when I just start exploring, it reminds me a lot of when I was younger, and I'm going to date myself here, and I would type in code from a magazine. Uh-huh. And, and I would run it. And in a lot of cases, I think those computer magazines in the early days would define success as, well, you've typed the code in, you've run the program, and now you're playing the video game. <laughs> right. Now, some, a few people might modify the code. And I think what's different is when, when I use these platforms and when people I'm teaching in, in, or, or even writing for there is sort of that start by doing something very similar where you just bring down somebody else's example program and then you start modifying it, maybe. Or maybe you just say, okay, I understood that. Now, what we did here is we guaranteed that you have to modify it because Chris very cleverly has gone into the code that you're going to download and he's removed he's removed support for one of the sensors in there. We have a few hints in the book You'll have to find them. That'll help guide you to how to add that back in. But you, in order to make your way through the book, you're going you're gonna to have to go beyond just copy and paste. So I don't think it's that what the code we're doing is inherently more complex. Some of the function calls might have longer names, but we are making sure that you do some coding. Got it, got it. So let's continue the walkthrough for the, for the, um, for the listener who's going to download this exercise. So they're configuring an agent. They're starting the agent running every time the agent runs every two seconds, it's, it's kicking something up to the cloud. And what happens after that? So now, uh, that you have data in the cloud, what are you going to do with that data? Well, obviously you want to take a look at it. You want to see the numbers changing and doing all kinds of things. I don't want to see my data. (laughs) I never want to see my data after I send it up. You don't, who doesn't want to do that? (laughs) Uh, so after that, the, the very next logical step is, is to create what's called a mashup and a mashup just helps you visualize that data and gives you a drag and drop interface to, to move things over to it. What kind of things can you visualize in a mashup? Uh, mostly numbers. So you can get your charts, your graphs, your gauges, uh, and you could even make your own, uh, different components as you become a ThingWorks wizard. Oh, I didn't know that. Can uh, I do can I do that? Am I smart enough? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I mean, if you're slinging C code to uh, talk to sensors, you got to be able to do some of the, you know, we're, we're talking full stack developers here. Oh, you got to be true. able to do uh, oh. some web-based uh, yeah, components. So, so it's not whether I'm able to, it's whether I'm obligated to. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Okay. So you have your mashup. It's showing you live data in real time. That's coming off of this, um, embedded edge device that's sitting on the table in front of you now the the hot thing these days which i've been hearing about all week uh, is augmented reality where you're not stopping at just having a dashboard on a computer screen somewhere you are uh, overlaying data coming from the edge onto a view of the real world and and augmented reality can be a headset that you know 
projects this stuff onto your view or more realistically something that's here now uh, it's an app that you run on your phone and you point your phone at a raspberry pi and see the data streaming off of it so let's talk about this vision for the future how you would extend this with augmented reality so we would really be using it to visualize the data uh, in the context of the Raspberry Pi. So, I mean, it's very simple in terms of this course. So it's meant to just illustrate what's possible. Uh, so contextual view of the data is one of the first things that we do with augmented reality. The second thing that we do with augmented reality is that we can show you a model of the Raspberry Pi and maybe the Raspberry Pi isn't the best example, but with more complex assemblies, like maybe if you had a car, you could actually have all the parts of the car being taken apart and it would show an animation of, okay, here's how to take off the wheel, here's how to open the door and do other things like that. So in, instead of the Raspberry Pi, maybe this could be one of those, say like a Raspberry Pi, one of those acrylic cases that you have to put together and screw together. You can buy on places like Adafruit, for example. Absolutely. And if, if you have a model, we can uh, make animations with it. So, I, so you, I could be looking through my phone and see, could I see which screw to take out? Yes. Really? Yeah, how, how, how much work would that be for me to create <laughs> as a developer? Not too much work. A lot of these tools are all graphical now. Okay. So uh, the biggest bit of work would be finding the, the 3D CAD model. Or drawing it from scratch. I or guess. drawing it from scratch. That's probably what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Again, you can walk through the IoT Learning Lab with us by joining our webcast on June 21 at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Or by looking at the archived version of that webcast, which we'll post a few days afterward. There's a link in the show notes for this episode, which you'll find at O'Reilly.com hardware. You don't have to be an electrical engineer or a software developer to do it. You just have to aspire to be a full stack hardware creator, which is not such a difficult thing. Not anymore. And speaking of the things that make it easier to be a full stack hardware engineer, I'd like to move into our next segment. This is called tools, where each of our guests talks about his or her favorite tools. They don't have to be work related. They could be you know, a favorite desk chair, a cookbook, a knife, something like that. But we just talk about the things that, you know, make the things that we like to do even better. So, Brian, let's begin with you. What is your favorite tool? Well, right now, the tool that I'm using the most is probably also my favorite tool. I've been, I was 3D printing a lot for a long time. And then I got a CNC router, a Inventables X-Carve. And now all I want to do is find really cool pieces of wood and make cool stuff with it. You're really into shellac, right? Yeah, I am really into shellac. I have been working with very thin veneer where I'll, I'll put a lot of shellac on it and then I'll mill out the shellac and you've got this, the blonde wood poking through the dark shellac. Although I am thinking about getting like a kitchen torch and burning the layer of the wood uh, or maybe even staining with coffee. I just want to try some freaky stuff. <laughs> nice, nice. Chris, how about you? What are what are your favorite tools? Well, for me, it's actually, it's probably a toss-up uh, between two of them. I, I was going to say one, and then I decided, oh, man, this other one, you mentioned knives, and I definitely have a love for knives. So uh, nice, I'm going to have nice. to say two of these. So uh, one of them is this this small little, it's uh, made by a French company. It's called Apinel, and it is the most simple-looking knife, but it is uh, a fold-in. Uh, there's actually a whole uh, group on Reddit that is devoted to this one kind of knife, and you just pull out the blade, and it's just this wonderful, like, so well-made 
nice light little pocket knife super sharp great thing to to work with and i usually carry one around with me uh most of the time what's the brand again uh Oppenel. nice we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh absolutely and the other one is a laser cutter uh i just i love playing with them because you can work with the wood and and actually i think mo- really for me it's more acrylic and i like i just love the the look and playing with acrylic i mean it smells horrible after you've uh-huh, cut it with a laser uh-huh. cutter but you can do so many things and just make it look really really cool so i love them it's so gratifying to watch the acrylic like melt under the laser beam (laughs) it really feels like something out of star wars like you're wielding a lightsaber i try not to look into the laser beam too much i like my (laughs) eyes i i fall into that trap (laughs) it's mesmerizing it's it's hard not to 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 watch it right right all right so now we move on to our final segment which is called click spiral and this is where each of us talks about something that's uh, gotten us lost on the internet recently. So it, it doesn't have to be work-related. It could be anything that's just caused you to open up a lot of browser tabs. And if listeners would like to send us click spirals to talk about on the show, um, they can email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And um, we'll take a look at them. We'll get ourselves a little lost. We'll talk about them on a future episode of the Hardware Podcast. So, um, why don't we start with Brian today? Brian, what's your click spiral? My click spiral has been two kind of interrelated things, Geiger counters and things that make them make clicky noises. So, I've gotten a little obsessed with what's called uranium glass. It's glass. It was used in bowls, cups, wine glasses, shot glasses, decorative items that had trace amounts of uranium in them and they've been using them for millennia is the uranium itself desirable or or is it a byproduct of the process it gives it a certain type of coloring it actually makes them fluoresce slightly uh, especially under uv light so they have a look to them that you just really can't get with anything else and you you've seen them in antique stores maybe family members have them it's Mostly clear with a slight green tint to it. Kind of like inexpensive 1930s pressed yeah, glass yeah, tchotchkes. Some of that's, yeah, because they kind of stopped uh, stopped doing it around that time. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know quite how long they were making it, but it uh, you know, eventually stopped and they don't make it anymore. But it's real easy to find. And, and if you are looking for some, you can get a UV flashlight and bring it with you when you're going to antique stores and you'll be able to pick it out. It is slightly radioactive, so I wouldn't sleep sleep with it under my pillow. <laughs> but uh, and then just looking around at various Geiger counters that can interface with Arduino and Raspberry Pi. Um, huh. There's really no purpose, but it's become my click spiral. So you mentioned things that make clicky noises. Geiger counters famously yep. make clicky noises. Yep. Is the is the clicking noise an integral part of the of the Geiger counter instrument, or is it just an effect that a microcontroller you know creates? Yeah. I think it's every time something gets triggered inside the Geiger-Muller tube. So that that becomes one click. So I don't know what that translates to. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, it's some some quantity of particles or or a single particle. Yeah, Uh, yeah. That's exciting something. I I think the word is scintillate, but I'm not quite sure. I (laughs) I just know they make cool clicking noises. Yeah, good physics term. I used to like those um, metal detectors that they used to have at the airports before the the contemporary generation that sounded a little like a theremin, you know, when they'd wave it over <laughs> something metal, it'd go like, Wee! Um, 
that was obviously something else, kind of like an analog, an analog device, right? Where you mm-hmm. just have like some sort of signal and it's getting amplified and turned into sound. All right. Awesome click spiral, Brian. Chris, what's your click spiral? So my click spiral is uh, all related to beer, of course. Okay. Uh, I was uh, looking up hops the other day. Uh, trying to replace some plants. And so, of course, I was just going to all the hop suppliers and, you know, pulling up this variety and comparing its alpha and beta acids and all these other ones and just seeing, well, what's going to grow good up in my house in Rhode Island? And uh, yeah, so it was lots of uh, lots of hop varieties. I ended up buying six or seven without even realizing it, but it was okay because they, uh, they all got planted. Nice. What kinds of hops grow in New England? Is well, it any kind of hops? Most hops will actually do pretty well in New England. Uh, the climate is very sim- uh, similar to what's over in Germany, uh-huh. uh, and some of the best hops grow there. And I mean, obviously, you can grow it up in the UK. I mean, they're all well known for their hops. Uh, so uh, some of the bigger ones are like Cascade and uh, um, Brewer's Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely have had a lot of those plants. And then there's some other strains that I've never heard of before. And that's why I was really getting into this research. And what happens is the cultivators, they sometimes combine two other plants and they, you know, they really just make a whole new strain that has better disease tolerance, maybe a better flavor, uh, could do better in certain climates and other than that. We talk a lot on this podcast about feedback loops, you know, and the amount of time that, that it takes to get uh, the results of something back after building it um, and how that feedback loop is getting tighter and tighter in hardware and electronics and stuff that you build physically growing hops and experimenting with them seems to have a very long feedback loop right you have to plant the thing and then you have to wait for it to mature you have to wait for it to produce the hop i don't know berries nodes the cones cones so the flowers okay hop cones Uh, and then you have to brew beer with them like Mm -hmm. how do you how do you deal with that it takes months between planting and figuring out how it turns out. Oh yeah, almost a whole year. I mean, it, it's exactly that. You have to plant them in the spring. Wait, 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 and then depends what kind of beer you brew. You could be waiting, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks or, or months, like you said. So, part of the way we get around that is we keep really good notes. Uh, mm-hmm. Every brewer or home brewer has a pretty good notebook that. Uh, they just write down everything about what the beer tastes like, what this was. Uh, I, I track my hops. I have a hop notebook where I actually write down, you know, all right, this year was pretty good. It came up around this time and I got this much yield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, you know, that's, I guess, long-term data uh, storage. <laughs> <laughs> Analog long-term data storage. Right, right. Nice. The power of data. Exactly. Terrific. So my click spiral this week has to do with a, a, a famous ocean liner collision in 1956 when the Andrea Doria um, and the Stockholm collided off the coast of New England, somewhere near, I think, Nantucket. It was a famous collision. Uh, the Andrea Doria sank and the, uh, the Stockholm came out of it not looking very good. <laughs> yeah, here's a photo. Uh, the whole front end, the whole bow of the ship was sheared off. The sinking of the Andrea Doria was memorialized in song and, and is one of basically the, one of the very last big ocean liner, uh, accidents before the end of the era of the ocean liner. And having seen a photo of the Stockholm, you would guess that that ship was decommissioned. In fact, that ship is still sailing as a cruise ship. That's comforting. The MV Astoria. It is. Yeah, it's very comforting. I, I would bet that they don't play it up. Um, so this, this ship had a, a long and strange history. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a transatlantic ocean liner right at the end of the era of the ocean liner. 
and then it um it was repaired and uh, upon repair it was sold to the east german government which made it a uh, a kind of cruise ship for uh communist party uh dignitaries and then it was sold to a handful of second-rate cruise lines it was rebuilt in the early 90s and it's still sailing around and so this got me into a click spiral on um kind of what happened to this last generation of cruise ships a handful of them are still sailing this is really one of the oldest ones um but you know you had this this enormous fleet as of the 50s that was uh you know represented a lot of investment on the part of these transportation companies and then um air travel came along and they were all made obsolete within a few years so they all went into a bunch of different places the um the queen mary of course uh, wound up in long beach and it's a hotel you know moored to a dock the queen elizabeth the original queen elizabeth uh was was taken to hong kong to be converted into a kind of floating university and it caught fire in hong kong harbor <laughs> sat there as a burned out hulk for a few years there was a james bond movie that was filmed there uh on the wreck and then when hong kong reclaimed some land from the bay they wound up just burying it under soil so it's still sort of still there um, <laughs> partly there uh and there are a handful of others that met uh fates like that there's uh there's an ocean liner from 1931 um called the boring quen that uh, ran aground uh right off the california coast and it was its wreck was incorporated into a breakwater and you can still find like rusted out pieces of old ocean liner so wikipedia has some helpful uh lists that aid in this and then you can also find a lot of enthusiasts uh cruise ship enthusiasts who love taking pictures of the insides of these like really weird old cruise ships i seem to remember a video uh pretty recently that uh, had a drone fly over of a, uh i don't know if it was a cruise ship graveyard or it was just a very large ship graveyard and it was just mm -hmm. these giant rusting hulks of of a, a ship Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it was just flying right over them. I wonder if uh, any of those ships ended up in there. I'll, I'd love to take a look at that. <laughs> I'll try to find that. There's a really cool wreck, not quite wreck. It's still floating, but only barely, of a of a, an immense transatlantic ocean liner called the SS United States that's moored in Philadelphia. And I was just in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago and saw it. And it's, it's really striking. Um, it's been decommissioned for... A while and there's a foundation that owns it and is trying to find money to restore it but it's going to cost a fortune um and it still i think holds one of the records for fastest transatlantic crossing in one in one direction um but now the thing is in bad sort of rusty shape anyway uh this has been click spiral and again listeners uh who want to send in a click spiral can email us at hardware at o'reilly.com we'll take a look at it and and click spiral into it and you can find links to the things that we've talked about on ClickSpiral by going to O'Reilly.com slash hardware and looking at the show notes for this episode. Great. Well, thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Um, if, if listeners want to find you and the things that you're working on, where do they look, Brian? I'm B. Jepson on Twitter. That's a good place to see pictures of cool stuff I've made and trouble that I'm getting into. Excellent. And Chris, where do people find you and the stuff that you're working on? Uh, so uh, my Twitter handle is Evil Crumpus, uh, E-V-I-L-K-R-U-M-P-I-S. It's actually a reference to an old college nickname, so nice, <laughs> I haven't nice. changed it and made it more professional yet. And where can people find the ThingWorks developer portal? 
That would be developer.thingworks.com. Now, we also mentioned Vuforia. That's the augmented reality software. You'll find it at Vuforia.com. And the main thing, this webcast that we're doing on June 21, where you can follow along with us on the IoT Learning Lab, you'll find a link to that in the show notes at O'Reilly.com hardware. Or just search in your favorite search engine for O'Reilly Webcasts, and you'll find all of our upcoming webcasts. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.